Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. The other day, I had occasion to reconnect with a fabulous product of Park Avenue Synagogue and now college senior Caroline Silver, who reminded me of a book I read in college, Don Quixote. Whether you have read it or not, I imagine you have heard of Miguel de Cervantes' 16th century literary classic. The Adventures of Our Man from La Mancha, who, having read so many stories of chivalrous knights that he loses his wits, he decides to become a knight himself. He puts on an old suit of armor, he renames himself Don Quixote de La Mancha, and he sets out on his beaten up horse in search of adventure. Part parody, part burlesque, part cautionary tale, Don Quixote has become an enduring literary referent point. To call someone or something quixotic means to be unrealistic or impractical. To fight windmills, as Don Quixote did, means to fight imagined opponents. From the paintings of Picasso to the music of Richard Strauss to the impossible dream of Broadway's hit musical, Man of La Mancha, Don Quixote's place in our cultural imagination continues to stand the test of time. Noteworthy as a figure of Don Quixote may be, I credit Caroline for pointing out that the really intriguing figure of Cervantes' novel is not actually Don Quixote, but Sancho Panza, the short, paunch, and earthy squire who accompanies Don Quixote in all his imagined adventures. Don Quixote's madness, so goes the argument, is revealed in the first few pages of the book. The shortcomings of his character are apparent to the reader from the very get-go. The really interesting question is Sancho, because Sancho, unlike the Don, is not crazy. The reader knows that Sancho knows that the Don is crazy, but nevertheless agrees to serve him, obediently so, arguably enabling his master's delusions. As a psychological study, the Don isn't a terribly interesting figure. Sancho, though, leaves us filled with questions. Is it self-interest that prompts him to follow his dawn, or is it fear? Sancho abandons his home and everything dear to him in search of a quest that both he and the reader knows is misguided. Why hitch one's wagon to a person so manifestly misdirected? How can it be that what is so self-evident to the reader is not so self-evident to Sancho? Indeed, as the book progresses, it's Sancho's character, not that of the Don, that comes into question. The Don seems to recover his sanity while Sancho, who began stable enough by dint of his association with the Don, loses both his grip on reality and his standing. This is the question of Sancho, or for sermonic purposes, the Sancho question. The degree to which the company one keeps ultimately becomes a comment not on one's company, but on oneself. 
Ever since the election, the Sancho question has weighed heavily on my mind. It's been on my mind for two reasons. The first of which I touched on last week and will make mention briefly. And the second I will get to soon enough. First, the emergent picture of our country. While the analytics of our synagogue's virtual viewership do not specify party affiliation, what I can tell you, and what you already know, is that whoever you voted for, some 70 million of your fellow citizens voted for the other guy. It's a humbling thought, the realization that what seems so self-evident to you is not so self-evident to the other half of the electorate. We live in a democracy, which means that our leaders are but reflections of ourselves, like our friend Sancho Panza. The decision we and our compatriots made to vote for this guy or that guy says as much, if not more, about us than it does about any name on the ballot. The election results, presidential and otherwise, make it unequivocally clear that our country is deeply divided, that we live in separate worlds with our own news sources, websites, and worldviews. And while there are undoubtedly extremist elements on both sides, it's an intellectual cop-out to dismiss every Biden vote as some socialist Antifa defund the police plot against America, just as it is to dismiss every Trump vote as some nefarious and backwards expression of misogynist, anti-immigrant, white supremacist ideology. Indeed, to dangerously label everyone who voted differently than you as some sort of extremist ideologue is to engage in the very short-sighted mudslinging that has brought our country to this toxic place in the first place. You may not like the candidate your fellow citizen voted for, you may not even like your fellow citizen, but that citizen is as much of a citizen of this country as you are. All of which means that if we care about the strength of our shared civic future, which I hope we all do, then we need to find a common language by which to communicate with the near equal number of Americans who think differently. We need to cultivate a mutual sense of inquiry and curiosity a willingness to engage with ideas different and contrary to our own, a self-expectation to be generous in our judgment and the humility to know that while we must never waver in our fight for what we believe in, we dare not presume to believe that we are in possession of absolute truth, certainly not when the health of our democracy is at stake. All of which brings us to the next stage of the Sancho question, a question which has grown in urgency these past few days as the election results came into focus. Democracy has spoken. Joe Biden has been elected president. Kamala Harris will be our vice president. These are not opinions. These are facts, facts given an exclamation point with Arizona turning blue the other night. And while it's beyond the purview of my pulpit to endorse any particular election result or reflect on the strengths or weaknesses 
of the electoral process, I have the same news sources as you, there is a moral question that has emerged with which we must grapple. And that question, for lack of rabbinic formulation, is the Sancho question. The far too many to count public figures who, in hitching their wagon so close to President Trump, that they have failed to signal an acceptance of the election results. No different than the forward journey of Don Quixote was contingent on the enabling gestures of his faithful squire, so too that of President Trump. To be clear, the question is not who you voted for. The stakes are greater than the agenda of any one political party or fate of any one political figure. At stake is the health of our country and the present and future security of our democracy. By refusing to acknowledge the results of the election, by sowing doubt into the legitimacy of the election, not only is a smooth transition between administrations being hindered during a critical juncture in the health, literally the health of our nation, the daily COVID numbers are staggering and frightening. But the earth is being salted with regard to America's foundational trust in our democratic processes. To be clear, President Trump's behavior is as uninteresting as it is consistent. He has never indicated that he would accept an electoral loss and it's on us if we expect him to do so now or ever. The moral question of the moment is not about him, but about those who are enabling him in their silence, in their tacit or actual support, who have yet to step forward and speak up. I have heard the arguments that it is a tactical decision with an eye to the Georgia Senate runoff, that it is a matter of certain individuals positioning themselves in the president's good graces towards a future election, that somehow to stay silent reflects some honor code which even when breached by others must nevertheless be maintained by oneself. I hear each argument, I understand each one intellectually, but in their aggregate, they collectively serve to enable a narrative of a stolen election. In their aggregate, they serve to undermine our democracy. And in their aggregate, they are a damning statement upon all those who could show leadership but have chosen to do otherwise. The deafening silence and shocking timidity of those who would claim leadership positions in our democracy and then fail to protect the very laws and structures that make that democracy possible will, I believe, be at best a moral stain on their legacies and at worst, God forbid, a cause for loss of life and irreparable damage to our nation that we love so dear. Of all peoples, ours is a people who know the consequences resulting from that deadliest sin of omission, the failure to speak out. Remember, our founding father Abraham, according to the Midrash, received the name Ha'ivri from the Hebrew root meaning other because he was willing to stand on one side while the rest of the world stood on the other. To be a Jew is to be willing to take a stand, popular or not, from Moses stepping forward as his Israelite brother was being beaten, to Queen Esther putting her political and personal stature at risk in defense of our people, the heroes 
are those willing to speak out. We know firsthand what happens when people don't speak up. We know, as the Talmud teaches, Shtika Kehora'a Dami, that silence is akin to acquiescence. This is a standard by which we must hold ourselves. This is a standard by which we must hold our leaders. The moral reckoning of our moment is about the Sanchos of the world, who will forever be remembered as having stood by silently when the health, the literal health of our country was at stake. Transitions are hard. They always have been, political, generational, and otherwise. Just think about King David and the Haftorah about how it should not be done. But think about Abraham, a man who seven times has been promised land, a man who at the end of his life doesn't have a sliver of real estate to his name. Abraham, a man who four times has been promised progeny by God, as numerous as sands of the earth and the stars of the sky, a man who at the end of his life had but one heir bearing his name. Abraham wasn't ready to transition out. He still had unfinished business. He didn't want to concede, but his final acts indicate a willingness to do so. He purchases a parcel of land. He finds a match for his son Isaac, two gestures that signal an acceptance of reality and an awareness of his role and responsibility in facilitating the transition at hand. It's because he took these steps that our people endured and that his legacy was assured. Abraham understood, as must we all, that our legacies are ultimately located beyond our personhood, our impact measured according to the degree to which our values extend beyond our length of years. It's how life works. It's how democracy should work. Some leaders see it clearly, some do not, but we all have an obligation to ourselves and our future towards making it so. The stakes are just too high to stay silent in this hour. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.